0: Well, there you go. Right. We have power. Great. Well, it's awesome to walk in here this morning. I've been up at at Leaking Alder Road, and it's always lovely to walk in and uh, see it's not leaking here, and to see the room full of people. So, uh, yeah, wonderful to see you. Um, We do need to know for next Saturday how many people are coming, so I know how many um, marrows to slaughter. (laughs) So uh, if you can sign up, that would be really helpful for that. Right, we are in the Book of Revelation today. We're we're doing a seven-week series based around Jesus' words, messages, letters to seven churches in the province of Asia, as the Bible defines that, or as uh, the world defined it at that time. And today we're Revelation 2, verse 18. Today is quite a serious message. It's around the theme of idolatry and uh, things that Jesus has to say to the church at Thyatira about that. So, uh, Lord, give us grace to hear your words. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira writes, "'These are the words of the Son of God, "'whose eyes are like blazing fire "'and whose feet are like burnished bronze. "'I know your deeds, your love and faith, "'your service and perseverance, "'and that you are now doing more than you did at first. "'Nevertheless, I have this against you. "'You tolerate that woman Jezebel, "'who calls herself a prophet.' Now I say to the rest of you in Tharatara, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the Morning star. whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now one of the joys of uh, church life here at Gateway is that we often have people having babies, Donna's next in line. And uh, I think Matthew and Donna are expecting an, another girl, as we seem to produce a lot of girls in this church. Sorry, Joel. Now you hate hoping for a brother, another sister. It's all, the way, it's all part of God sanctifying you, okay, mate? <laughs> but uh, one thing I'm fairly sure, I don't know what, what Matthew and Donna are planning to, to call their baby, but I am, would be willing to stake a large bet on it not being Jezebel. <laughs> Jezebel is just not a name we choose for our kids. And uh, we'll see why that is as we go through this passage this morning. We're looking at seven messages, letters, that Jesus gives to seven different churches, but which represent all churches in all ages. And this letter to the church in Thyatira is actually the longest of the seven. And that's kind of interesting because Thyatira is, in many ways, the least impressive of the seven cities to which Jesus speaks. One writer says that Thyatira was the least known, least important, least remarkable of the cities. Other of the cities, the churches and the cities which Jesus addresses were very impressive. They were places which had massive populations relative to the, uh, that point in history, economically, politically massively important, incredible architecture. That wasn't Tharatara. Tharatara is just a much more normal kind of place. And we might think, well, it's just much more kind of a BCP type of a place, not somewhere which necessarily people around the world look at and are amazed at, although Nathaniel with his uh, PR work at the university is always telling us (laughs) about the amazing things happening in BCP. Now, the issues in a normal place like Thyatira are always relevant in other normal places like where we live. Thyatira became part of the Roman Empire in 190 BC, and one thing it was known for was having lots of small businesses, and these were formed into trade associations or or trade guilds, and there were all kinds of little industries going on, the production of purple dye, uh, trading in different commodities, creation of different stuff. And again, we can see some similarities with where we live, because all around the conurbation here, there are lots of industrial estates, and most of us are not very aware of what's going on in them, but if you poke your head into one of those sheds or warehouses. There's all kinds of amazing stuff happening in BCP. There are, we have an unusually high level of small businesses in this area, and there are all kinds of people doing all kinds of interesting things. And so you, there's lots which is centered around the maritime industry, but all kinds of things, engineering companies making stuff, and specialist stuff being produced, and. Uh, just all kinds of interesting things going on, which most of us are unaware of. And Thyatira is a bit like that, a, a place of industry, small businesses, and these small businesses being formed in kind of trade associations, trade guilds. We, we, we actually hear about this in Acts 16, when the Apostle Paul crosses from Asia into Europe, and we have the first convert made to Christianity in Europe, and that was actually somebody from the city of Thyatira. Acts 16, we read about Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth the apostle Paul meets in Philippi, she's the first person, even though she's from the province of Asia, she's the first person to respond to the gospel in Europe, very significant moment, and she's a trader in purple cloth, something that Thyatira was known about. And these different trade guilds, trade associations would meet together and feast together like we're going to do next Saturday, but as part of their feasting, they would offer sacrifices, worship to the god Apollo, the sun gods who was seen as being patron of trade in Thyatira. He was the one they would pray to in order to look for his blessing upon their businesses. And that was also then kind of mixed up with worship of the Roman emperor. Thyatira became part of the Roman emperor, 190 BC. And the Roman emperor was seen as Apollo incarnate. Apollo, the son of Zeus, chief of the gods. Apollo, the sun god, and the Roman emperor being Apollo made flesh. And so these trade guilds would meet, they'd feast, they'd talk about business, and they'd offer sacrifices to, the, to Apollo and to the emperor. And that historical context frames what Jesus then says to the church in Thyatira, the problems of the church. Now, there's nothing wrong with business. There's nothing wrong with trade in purple cloth or whatever else it might be. There's nothing wrong with the engineering firms making specialist parts for boats in warehouses around BCP. There's nothing wrong with that. But there is a problem when that becomes mingled with a idolatrous approach, with a worship, a trust in something other than the living, true God. And it's that which Jesus speaks into. And so Jesus introduces himself to this church and says, this is who I am. I am the Son of God." You're worshipping Apollo and the emperor, son of Zeus. I am the son of God. Zeus, just a myth. I'm God's true son. And Jesus says that he has eyes like blazing fire. What's that about? Well, it's symbolic of the way that Jesus sees through the lies of the idolatry, which is infesting the city of Thyatira. Jesus sees through it. Jesus Sees into people's hearts. And Jesus says he has feet like burnished bronze. What's that about? Well, the Roman Empire was like burnished bronze. Strong, bestraddling the earth. Jesus says, I'm stronger than your emperor. And I'm more glorious than your Apollo. This is the choice. You're giving yourself to idolatrous worship of these false gods who can't save you. This is who I am, son of God eyes like blazing fire, feet like burnished bronze. And the first thing that Jesus does then is to speak a word of commendation. He says, church, Thyatiran church, you're doing so much well. You're full of love and faith and service and perseverance. And that's good. And their service and their perseverance flow out of their love and their faith. In church life, there are all kinds of ways in which all kinds of people serve. And there's all kinds of ways in which people persevere in faithful service. Why do we serve in church life? Why why do people offer their time and their money and their efforts and their energies to serving in church life? You can do it legalistically. You can do it just out of a sense of duty. Or you can do it because it comes from faith and love. And that seems to be true for these Tharatarans. They loved Jesus and they had faith in Jesus. And that love and faith in Jesus and overflowed in love for one another. And so they were serving Jesus and serving one another and persevering in that, even though at times it was costly and difficult. And that's great, and that's what we need as well. And it's beautiful when we see that in church life, love and faith, then overflowing in perseverance and service. If if we're going to do what Nathaniel's just been talking about in terms of This building project we're going for, Alder Road, that's going to take real service, real perseverance. It's going to be costly for some of us personally. It's going to be sacrificial costs to make it happen. Why would we do that? Well, again, we could do it legalistically. We could do it out of a sense of duty, obligation, or actually we do it out of a sense of love and faith. We love Jesus. We love his people. We love what he's doing here. We've got a sense of vision for what christ is doing through this church and we want that to flourish and so yeah we're going to serve we're going to persevere even if it costs because we love it we love jesus we love his people we love what's happening here and so service and perseverance flow out of love and faith and jesus commends the church in thara for that and he would commend us for that and that's good gateway church where you're serving and persevering out of love and faith well done There's lots to commend about this church but there's also a lot to be concerned about. And the concern that Jesus has is that they are compromising with idolatry. They've allowed false teaching to take root in the church and they're compromising with idolatry and that can happen. Beautiful, faithful congregations who somehow allow false teaching to come in, take root and get swallowed up in a disastrous idolatry. And here in Thyatira, the whole story focuses around this person, Jezebel, the person we don't name our babies after. And uh, most people don't even know who, I'm sure wouldn't know who Jezebel was. I'm sure I'll stop the average person on the street and say, who was Jezebel? I'm sure nobody would have it. Most people wouldn't have a clue, but they know you shouldn't call your child Jezebel. You don't call your child Nero. You don't call your child Hitler, Stalin, or Jezebel. And sometimes when they're teething or when they're teens, you think you should have done, but you don't. It's just one of those names you don't call your kids. And uh, even if people don't know why, they just, Jezebel is notorious. Now, it's an Old Testament story, and as I keep saying in this series, if you're going to understand Revelation, you need to understand the Old Testament. And the story of Jezebel happens in the book of 1 Kings. Here's a couple of verses which paint the picture. Ahab, who was king of Israel... Not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who up to that point had been the wickedest of Israel's kings, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols, like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. Ahab and Jezebel stand for everything that goes wrong with God's people. False teaching that comes in right at the heart of the nation, the king and the queen. Idolatry and a pursuit of evil. You see Ahab, this kind of weak man who just pursues evil, urged on by his wife Jezebel. And that leads to judgment, ultimately it leads to exile. The people of Israel taken from their land, taken as captives to Babylon. And that's why we don't call our babies Jezebel. Now, Jesus says there's a Jezebel in the church at Thyatira. And this Jezebel is leading the church into compromise, just as Jezebel urged Ahab into compromise and wickedness. And the words that Jesus uses here are stark. He says that the church is being led into immorality and idolatry and adultery. There's a, a fornication with false gods that's going on and if that's not confronted and dealt with it's going to lead to disaster just as it led to disaster in the days of Ahab and Jezebel we don't know who this Jezebel was in tara but it seems most likely that it's an actual person someone who's got a strong although false kind of prophetic gift someone who's obviously a very charismatic person somebody who probably in Our terminology today is probably a very controlling and manipulative person and has managed to seize authority in the church and bring false teaching in, which is leading to all this trouble. And one very practical question I ask as one of the elders in this church is, where were the elders? Because one of the roles of the elders in the church is to safeguard the church against exactly this kind of thing happening. One of the things that Nathaniel and I and the other elders are called to do is actually make sure that false teaching doesn't take root in this church. And we're to guard the church against manipulative and controlling people who would bring false teaching in. So where, where were the elders? So another sermon, Jesus doesn't answer that question, but it's an interesting one. And it seems that what this Jezebel was doing was encouraging members of the church to keep on participating in these guilds trade association feasts. It seems that she's kind of saying to them, You still keep doing that. It doesn't matter. It's not going to really affect you. It doesn't really mean anything. You can go and offer sacrifices to Apollo and the emperor. It doesn't really mean anything. So right, You you can have Jesus and you can have this. It's fine. And... There's that compromise that's happening. It's a bit like the story of Israel and the golden calf. You remember the story, Moses leads the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt into the wilderness. Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God. Suddenly the people just go crazy. They make these golden calves and begin to worship them. And they're also kind of worshiping God at the same time. And it's like, we want to have the Lord, but we also want this thing which feels more tangible. And it seems that here in Tharetara, Jezebel was doing something similar. She was kind of saying... You can have Jesus, but you can keep going to your trade association. You can keep going to your Masonic Lodge, which is probably our closest kind of parallel. You can keep going there and keep offering your sacrifices and participating in that. And it doesn't matter because there isn't really any power there because Apollo isn't really real anyway. So it doesn't really matter. You just keep doing that, it's fine. And Jesus says, no, that just reflects a compromise which is going to be disastrous. And and Jesus says, look, I've given... Jezebel, time to repent, and she hasn't, and that's a dangerous place to be. If, if we're in rebellion against God, and God in his grace gives us time to repent, and we don't, that's dangerous. And we might think that what's happening in Thyatira is just kind of, it's just little little local issues, but these little local difficulties have real consequence. You read on through the book of Revelation, you get to Revelation 18, and The Lord speaks about how He's going to bring judgment upon Babylon, Babylon, the city to which the exiles from Israel were carried, but Babylon representing all human rebellion against God, all human and spiritual power that opposes God. And Jesus says in Revelation 18, Babylon will fall. It's not just a TV series or whatever it is. Babylon will fall. And there in Revelation 18, Jesus gives a list of the things which are going to fall the dealers in purple and gold, and wood, and all the other stuff. Their trade is going to cease. Why? Because business is bad? No. But because there's been an idolatry where the systems of the world have been built on a worship of those things rather than a worship of the living God. Jesus is going to overturn the systems in which people put their trust. And and we've seen recently how fragile our systems are, the things in which we just routinely put our trust. We've seen it just in the last week with extraordinary rises in gas prices. My gas supply went bust. Maybe yours has as well. And what we've seen at the petrol pumps where there's a shortage of tanker drivers and suddenly there's no fuel and the queues and the fights... And we saw it a few months ago when that massive container ship got stuck in the Suez Canal. And even now, still, there's the global supply chain hasn't caught up. The logistics are still out of whack because shipping containers aren't where they're meant to be. And we see all these systems which we thought were so robust and reliable and we didn't even think about because we thought they were robust and reliable actually are fragile. You have 17,000 fewer people taking HGV tests as happened last year in the UK than normal. And suddenly, there's not enough truck drivers. The system is fragile. And when anybody in the government says, don't panic, we know that's the cue to panic. That is the moment to rush out, get in a queue, and start punching people. (laughs) Don't panic leads to panic. (laughs) Now what Jesus says is that Jezebel, Babylon, idolatry will be brought to panic. Jesus says he's the one who searches hearts and minds. He's got those blazing eyes. He is the one who's going to separate what is true from what is false. And in Thyatira, the church is in danger of selling itself to what is false rather than holding on to what is true. But then Jesus also says to those of you who haven't compromised, to those of you who are faithful, he's not not going to put any burden upon you. Just hold to the truth. That's all he asks. And it seems here that Jesus is referencing what happened in the book of Acts. Acts 15, there were trouble and division in the early church is centering really around people who were ethnically Jewish and those who weren't Jewish and working out how this now becomes one new thing with Jew and Gentile together how does this operate and in Acts 15 we read about what's called the Council of Jerusalem where the apostles and elders got together and worked out how Jews and Gentiles are meant to live in harmony in the church and they just say there's just a few things we need you to do Acts 15:28. it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us Not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You're to abstain from food sacrificed to idols. Now, that's exactly the same thing which Jesus then says to this church in Thyatira. I'm not going to burden you with much. Just don't compromise with idolatry. That's all that's being asked. Don't compromise with idolatry. Compromise in the end leads to panic and exile and disaster. Don't compromise with idolatry. Instead, stay faithful, and if you do, there's a great reward. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Now, Jesus here is referencing Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is the great messianic psalm, which speaks about the Lord's power, describes how the nations, the kings of the earth, have this pretense of power and authority, but the Messiah, the Lord, is going to smash that authority as an iron scepter smashes pottery. And Jesus says here that those who stay faithful are going to share in his rule. That's the pretense of earthly rule, or you can share in the rule, the true rule of the Messiah of Jesus. He also says that those who stay faithful will be given the morning star. The Roman emperors claimed to be descended from Venus, the morning star. We know Venus. You can go and see Venus in the sky, the morning star. But the Romans, Roman and Greek mythology, not just a star physically, but a, a goddess. And the emperors claimed to be descended from Venus. So this descended from Venus and Apollo made flesh. And Jesus says, no, I am the true morning star. Christ is the true ruler he is the truly glorious one, and the faithful will share with him in all that he is and all that he has. And so the choice that Jesus is giving to these people, to the Thyatirans and to us, is why waste your life on trinkets when you can have treasure? Why waste your life on trinkets when you can have treasure? There's this comparison between earthly rule and the rule of the king. There's this comparison between taking part in the trade association feasts or feasting with Jesus. Why have trinkets when you can have treasure? And this is relevant to every one of us in this room. For those of us who know Jesus, most of us, this is a reminder to us and a challenge to us. Is there some aspect of our lives, some area of our lives we're compromising and saying, well, I'm going for the trinkets when you've already got the treasure. And if you don't yet know Jesus, this is the... The question, the searching question for you, the stuff you're pursuing in life, is it really worth pursuing that stuff, which in the end will be like broken pottery just disintegrating into dust, when you could have Jesus, you could have a share in the morning star, you could share with him in ruling nations as an infinite gap between those two things. What are you going to choose? And so then why would anybody choose trinkets over treasure? Why? And it's because Jezebel is alluring. <laughs> and Jezebel appears in many forms in every age. And so we need to think about what our Jezebels might be. In Tharatara, the issue was people actually literally going to idol feasts. That's different in our situation. We might ask, why, why would Christians have wanted to participate? Why would they want to go and do that? Why would they want to go make sacrifices to Apollo and the emperor? And I think it's just the normal human stuff. It's FOMO. It's fear of missing out. We don't do that. What are we going to miss out on? Actually, what's that going to cost us? What's that going to cost in terms of reputation? And what are the potential economic penalties? Because this this isn't only about whether or not you go to a party. This is about whether you are welcomed and accepted in this trading guild. And if you don't go to the feast, does that mean you're going to be cut off from trade? Does that mean that you'll never get a job? Or nobody will ever buy your stuff. And if that happens, how are you going to live? And so these aren't just kind of light, trivial questions about whether you're going to a party or not. These are questions about whether you're going to survive. And that is a question of worship, a question of trust. If I choose to trust Jesus, is Jesus able to provide for me? Or am I going to trust in this thing? The trinket, which at the moment looks reliable. Now, our issues today are different from those of the Tharatarans. Actually, many parts of the world still exactly the same issues in terms of going to literal idol feasts. It's not true here so much in the UK. But the broader issues are the same. We don't want to miss out, don't want to stand out, and we don't want to be penalized. And it takes real grace and wisdom to navigate that. Now, as we navigate these things, we shouldn't be looking to be confrontational. As Christians, we don't want to just be... We're not looking to be confrontational with our society. That's, that's foolishness. But we do have to navigate things so that we don't fall into idolatry. That the best, probably, Bible example we often talk about is the Apostle Paul in, in Athens, Acts 17. Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens... I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. What we see there is the Apostle Paul's missional genius that he doesn't go in and confront the athenians he doesn't go and say you're crazy with all your idols and your false worship what are you doing he's he's clever he's wise he's winsome he's gracious he goes i see that you're you're sincere in your worship but i can also see that you're just missing it let me help you see the truth and we need to have that kind of winsomeness and that kind of wisdom ourselves we're not looking to be confrontational. But also we can't afford to compromise. And the reality is that people today are very religious without realizing often what it is they're worshiping. And even denying that they're religious. But the evidence of their religiosity is plain when your eyes are opened. Now, at the risk of offending all kinds of people, let me give some examples <laughs> of what some of these idols could be in our, in our, in our point in history. The first one, Probably the most obvious one at our current moment in history is around sexuality and gender. That is an idol. When, as has happened the other week, one of the leaders of one of our major political parties says, it is not right to say only women have a cervix. That's idolatry. Now, it's scientifically crazy it kind of undermines the whole scientific basis on which our society is meant to stand. But it's, it's, it's an idolatrous position to say that it's not right to say that only women have a cervix. And, and that's a difficult one for us to navigate at this time, a massively difficult one for us to navigate, precisely because one of the leaders of one of the major political parties and others is saying it. So if the institutions of power are saying... It's not only women who have services. (laughs) (laughs) Then it's difficult for us to navigate. And I know some in this room already are having significant difficulty navigating this stuff in the workplace. Increasingly, it's hard to navigate this stuff. And one response can be to be confrontational, which isn't wise and not where we want to be. We've got to be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves, and it's going to be difficult, and at times it is going to be costly, and there is going to be costs demanded of some of us, which we're going to have to consider seriously, just as the Tyrans did. Am I going to go to that guild trade association feast and bring my offering to Apollo, or am I not and risk the potential economic consequences? Am I going to go with the kind of cultural idolatry around sexuality and gender and keep my job, or am I going to say no and particularly potentially jeopardize my economic position? That's not trivial stuff. This is difficult. And so we need real wisdom, real grace, not confrontation, but also not compromise. Here's another one. What about materialism? We tend to think materialism is a problem for the person who's got more than I have. But actually, materialism, really, the God of materialism is really the God of comfort. And that's an issue for those who are rich. It's also an issue for those who are not so rich. And the God of comfort is incredibly powerful. The God of comfort which says, you deserve it. You're worth it. Take it easy. Don't extend yourself. Don't put yourself out there. Sit back. Lazy boy chair. Beer and chips in your hands. Netflix on. Nobody troubling you. Block out the world. Don't respond to any demands. It's incredibly powerful, and it is an idolatry, which can afflict us all. I know the God of comfort can come calling at my door, and even with what Nathaniel was talking about in terms of our our plans for the building, I know that as soon as we start to talk about that, the God of comfort starts to scream, because the God of comfort is challenged by that. What about politics? We see idolatry in politics, we've seen that over the over recent years, in the way that we've become so polarized and there's been so much division. We've seen it in the, in the way that issues of Brexit or COVID or whatever it might be can become more important to Christians than the gospel. And there have been so many examples tragically of that. Sometimes we don't even see how politics becomes an idol. The, the starkest example I can give, and I'm going to get in all kinds of trouble for this one, but From a British perspective, we look at our friends in America, and for most Brits, the American obsession with guns is completely mystifying. Why are the Americans so. Why have they got 400 million firearms in general circulation in America? And every year, thousands and thousands of people get shot and killed, whether by accident or by intent. Why don't the Americans just do. Why? Why? And from our British perspective, it just looks like idolatry. It looks like they're in love with their guns, worshipping them, putting their faith in the guns. If you go to America, most Americans have exactly the same emotional response about how we Brits think about the NHS. They think we're crazy in how we kind of worship the NHS. Now, of course, the NHS is a good thing. Healthcare is good. Free at the point of delivery, wonderful. Wonderful. But if that's where we're putting our hopes of salvation, then that is idolatry. (laughs) And this is how idolatry works. It's often very subtle. And often it's the things which actually are in themselves good, which become our idols. I was with a friend this week, Andrew Haslam, who leads a church in London. He was telling me about a guy in his church they baptized recently. And this guy's idol had been white nationalism. And this guy had taken part in rallies around Europe in support of white nationalism. And then he'd come to faith in Jesus, his heart had been changed, his idols had been overturned. At his baptism, four guys involved in baptizing him, only one of whom was Anglo-Saxon white. That's what the gospel does, overturns our idols. And idols can take all kinds of forms. Think of the other things which could be idols, family, pets, football, Netflix, the list is endless. Now, Jesus says, this is all I ask. Don't compromise with idolatry. Be faithful. Whatever the lure or power of Jezebel, stay faithful. Keep the reward in mind. Choose the treasure over the trinkets. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over nations. I will give a share in the morning star. Why would you pursue the trinkets when you can have the treasure? Why compromise with idolatry when you can know the true and living God? Yes, that might be costly. At times it might be difficult. Don't want to trivialise that. But think about the co- the contrast. Compromise leads to disaster, leads to dust. Faithfulness leads to glory, to a share in and with Christ. That is what we're offered. And it's to that which we need to remain faithful. Lord, I pray that you would help us in this day, in our time, in our moments, to be faithful as we're called to be. I pray that we would resist Jezebel, whatever, whoever that might be, whatever form that might take in our lives, in our context, in our culture, our society. Lord, I pray you'd help us to have our eyes open. Thank you. You're the one with eyes like blazing fire, and I pray that we would see with something of the clarity that you have, and we wouldn't be taken captive by false teaching and false narratives and get sucked into lies. Help us see the truth in you. Remember who we are and what we have in you, and stay faithful to that as your people. Thank you. You're faithful to us. And so I pray, King Jesus, keep us faithful to you in turn. In your name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Let's come back and worship our faithful Jesus. We're just
1: going to stand as we respond. him. God, I thank you for the message we've heard this morning. I just pray, help us to be single-minded about you, Lord. I pray right now you'll just highlight the things which might have crept into our lives, that we might not consider idols, but have taken your place. Lord, we want to be focused on you. We want to be single-minded on you. Thank you, Jesus. So, so good With every breath that I am able I will sing of the goodness of God Sing all my life And all my life you have been faithful And all my life you have been so so good with every breath that i am able i will sing of the goodness of god yes i will sing of the goodness of god oh i will sing of the goodness of of
0: that somebody of us in this room can speak of your faithfulness to us through all kinds of situations. So I pray for us in those situations which are costly, difficult, where we're facing things, where we think, what is this going to cost me? That we, we would trust in your faithfulness and we'd see your provision and your supply. We trust that you are the one who is able to care for us and look after us. Thank you, you taught us, give us this day our daily bread. And I pray whatever bread we need this day, each day, we come to you in faith. that you are able to supply for us more that we need Amen Amen, well, we need to finish kind of lost track of the time, sorry One thing I want to talk about or somebody else wants to talk about is uh, just going to share something which I've been anticipating hoping, having faith I would be able to share for some time now and uh, Dale's just going to come and update us on something Come on, Dale Thank you, Matt Uh, Most of you
1: probably know that Angie and I